Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Let's read these verses together. For those of you who are guests, we seek to be as family here as often as we can. I don't know necessarily what formal worship looks like, but I do believe we're becoming more and more familiar with what family worship looks like. And we desire to become increasingly aware of what I state almost every Sunday morning, how to love the Lord, His Word, and each other more and more um, as we worship together. If you need a Bible, the ushers are ready to hand one out to you. If you don't have one on a device, or maybe you left that in a car or in your coffee table at home, just slip up your hand, they'll find you and give you a scripture to follow along with. And for those of you who are guests, we try to go through one book a year in the morning service, and we've been journeying through the book of wisdom, Ecclesiastes. And this morning, we begin the conclusion to this book. It's a four-chapter conclusion. The conclusion of this book is going to re-highlight some familiar themes, but it's going to add at times some more material in support of those wisdom themes throughout the book. And I trust your hearts will be encouraged this morning uh, as we move along. I would like to begin reading, though, in chapter 8 and verse 16. I really believe there's a natural flow here. And in relationship to the title for this morning's sermon as written in your Sunday program, I believe it'll make sense why we begin here. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 8.16, When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which, which, which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun, even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know he cannot discover. Now jump back up to verse 14 just to fresh, refresh your memories again. A little bit more of the immediate context because in original scripture there was no chapter break. So we're trying to bring the truth together here. What was some of the conflict that Solomon um, endured in his own mind and hearts that we do the same? There's some things that are just hard to grasp, hard to understand. And verse 14 says there's Futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And on the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And he says, I think this is futility. And he quickly goes to that familiar way that he concludes, right? Uh, each section of the first three sections of the book of Ecclesiastes in verse 15. And then he crescendos on to what we've already read in verse 16. We try to know and we may never know. And that's okay because we could never handle all the information that God knows. You can cross-reference here next to verse 16, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, 11 where God said he has set eternity in the heart of every man. And we explained what that meant months ago. As image bearers, God has put this, this compelling in our hearts to know and to try to wrap our minds around that which we seek to know in full and we find out that we can't. And so we're left to do something with confidence, right? 
1 Peter 4.19, entrust ourselves to a faithful creator who does know while we continue to do good things. And that's where we come to chapter 9. What's the lifestyle of a wise person who lives and endures this life that's full of spiritual mystery? What's the lifestyle of one who endures in this life as this life is full of spiritual mystery or what I would call a margin of mystery? Go to verse nine, chapter 9 and verse 1. It says, For I have taken all this to my heart and explain it, that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. So what? It is the same for all. There is one fate. You're going to see that word fate here. And it just simply means end. There is one end. And you're going to see it again in verse number 3 in a moment. For there is one end for the righteous and for the wicked. For the good, for the clean, and for the unclean. For the man who offers the sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil, and that is done under the sun, that there is one end, one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts through their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. For whoever is joined with all the living, there's hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in that which is done under the sun. Go. Really neat two little word there, verb, that you should underline. Understanding these things, go. Eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you to do under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. That phrase, in your toil, you probably recognize again from chapter 8 and verse 15, right? This is what we do. We eat, we drink, to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils. So there's some things that we're to enjoy while we persevere in inevitable trials as we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand and entrust ourselves to him as a faithful creator. So we're going to look at the final verse here in verse 10, which I believe concludes this section. 
this first of section of the final fourth section of the book, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in the grave. That's what Sheol is here. Where you are all going. All right, we'll go back to the beginning of the chapter here and begin to understand wisdom's address to helping you properly handle life's margin of mystery. What do we do when life doesn't make sense? We've handled a lot of that information in the first eight chapters, but remember this is the beginning of the conclusion. We're going to review some things with a little bit of new information. Solomon is going to summarize much of what he's given us in the first eight chapters. And in this review, we'll find satisfyingly more information that's going to continue to settle your hearts and encourage you to live God's mission with joy according to God's wisdom. And what do we first learn in our conclusion here? We're going to spend the rest of this morning talking through these 10 verses in relationship to the first lesson that we learn here. And the first lesson in these first 10 verses is simply this. You don't have to let the margin of mystery in life rob your joy. You don't have to let the margin of mystery in life rob you of your joy. I was recently talking to a missionary friend of ours in Ireland. And we were on a a Zoom video chat together. And he was recounting for me their uh, joyful experiences in church planting ministry in Ireland and he said there was a thread of some really really good things that had happened including a few conversions but he said the last six months it seems like everything that God did in their first handful of years there he had chosen to undo situation by situation and he's a younger pastor he's out there with a young family going at ministry for the first time and he was incredibly discouraged and so we talked and we wept and we prayed and he said i just don't understand this i don't understand this and there's not a lot of mature believers around me in ireland where i can go for help so i was able to take him back to ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 14 and remind him that there's a margin of mystery in life that we'll never be able to figure out, but what can we do? And what should we do? And I trust those words of encouragement were helpful to him because I'm going to explain some of those words of encouragement to you who feel stuck in these mysteries of life that we can't wrap our minds around uh, and hopefully give us some traction in the right direction here. The apparent confusion is even woven into what our text calls the work of God. The work of God. No one can tell by the way God treats mankind whether they are objects of his wrath or objects of his love. That's what verse 1 teaches us. We remember from chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, that prosperity is not always a good thing and chapter 7 verses 1 to 15 that adversity or affliction are not always bad things god's approval or disapproval of us cannot always be read by what's in front of us remember job's friends 
they thought he'd sinned. And they gave their counsel based on what they assumed. Tragedy had come upon Job's life, and even his close friends added more to the tragedy because of what they assumed, because what they assumed was not Job's reality. We cannot conclude that God only sends blessings to those he loves and adversity to those he doesn't. A godly man once said, if believers are to walk by faith, there will be times when outward appearances and facts will defy explanation for that moment. But suffering can be balanced with joy and give us direction. Then he spends a lot of words here in verses 2 through 9, giving us some wisdom on how to handle life and how to face life's most tragic moment, death. How do we pursue living with joy in the midst of imminently facing death? And we're going to find out some things that encourage our hearts here. You know that we've already looked at death together, right? In previous chapters. Remember, this is review. He's going to add some more information here, and we, we learned that death could be a tremendous educator and a, the reality of the imminent um, breathing of our last breath on this earth can be a great instructor for our hearts. But Solomon's trying to say here, hey, this is how I wrestled my heart back to joy in light of all these things I didn't understand, particularly in relationship to the timing of my death, but this is how I wrestled my heart to joy. And he wants to help us do the same. There's a theology of suffering in the scriptures that you're all familiar with. Suffering can be educational. Suffering can be doxological. It could teach us something about God and his glory and Sometimes we learn a little bit about patience in suffering when God says, wait. And sometimes suffering can be revelational. It can teach us new things about ourselves and teach us more truth about the word of God that we need to strengthen our hearts in maturity. And, and we know ultimately that suffering can be sacrificial. And we see that in Isaiah 53 with the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, or the prophecy of that sacrifice as the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. But Solomon is telling us something here, particularly that suffering in death is inevitable, but what do we do with it? Why is death looked at as a moment to exclusively just suffer? I'm reading a book right now. It's a fascinating book. It's not written by a believer, but obviously a man created in God's image, and um, it's called The Mindfulness Solution, and maybe some of you have read this book by Ronald Segal. He says in this book, our prognosis as humans is terrible. He says, in my psychology classes, I would have students raise their hand, and he would say, how many of, in he how many of you in here are going to die? And in every class, he always found it fascinating that only half the class would raise their hands. <laughs> right? And that always puzzled him. 
He quotes a Zen master, and even Zen masters, right, are created in the image of God. And he would quote this to his students. He would say, what's the, the Zen master would ask, what's the most remarkable thing you've learned in all your years of meditation and study? The most remarkable thing that he had learned in his study is that we're all going to die, but we all try to live each day as if that weren't so. And Seagal's conclusion was simply this. He felt that the Zen master was onto something. He said, look how much emotional suffering man endures when things change. And his conclusion is, we're not created to embrace change very easily. Have you ever had a child that wanted to easily give up their pacifier when it was time to move on to the fifth grade? <laughs> Have you ever had a child that just really desired to be potty trained? You ever have a child that had any kind of separation anxiety on their first day of kindergarten or preschool? He goes on to say that our resistance to change starts early and continues throughout the rest of our lives with every subsequent transition. Moving, losing friends, loved ones, changing jobs. Like who really wants to grow up and drive a minivan? Right guys? He said, I cried when I dropped my kids off at college. He said, I don't look forward to retirement. And I certainly don't look forward to entering that assisted living center someday. He said, I certainly don't look forward to saying goodbye to this whole world entirely. Resisting these inevitable changes causes, he says, considerable unhappiness. Another author, Voss, wrote a book in the 80s called Necessary Losses, which points out that most of what makes us unhappy involves the difficulty in dealing with the inevitability of change. I really believe Solomon's saying the same thing here. There's something that we cannot change, and that is the moment of our death. It's appointed unto man, the scripture says, right? To die one time, and God knows what that time is, and that time's not going to change, but none of us knows when that time is. And that causes us pain, right? The inevitability of the change, but yet that change and the time of that change is still unknown. We read through verses two and three and noticed something inevitably the same about the wise and the unwise. There's a change that's going to come as a result of a fate they're going to face that's inevitable. It's unavoidable, and the contemplation of death is something that we don't want to consider. But it's coming for both the righteous and the wicked. This truly, even for many Christians, has become one of the greatest mysteries of life, and unfortunately, one of the greatest agonies at the same time. And Solomon is saying here, there's a way to approach this inevitable change that's coming, but do so without causing unhappiness in your own soul. 
How do we live with joy even in the face of life's most miserable way to suffer? We're going to discuss that here as we go along. Let's look at verse 4 again here. He says, For whoever is joined with all the living, there's hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. What then is to be chosen with all the living? There's hope. So he's beginning to give us wisdom in relationship to how do we face this inevitable date with death. With the living, there's hope. What's he saying by that? Well, wisdom's teaching us here that part of enduring suffering, especially the inevitable event of death, is about pursuing responsible things while you're alive. Pursue daily responsible things while you're alive. For the unwise, their main focus should be preparing to meet God for sure, right? And for the believer, we're to remain focused on enjoying what believing, living, prioritized, eternal purpose really looks like in relationship to our hope. For whoever the language says here, is joined to all the living, he has hope. The believer's responsibility, according to this wisdom, is embrace your biblical and personal responsibilities and live them well. This is living among the living, which produces hope, which we'll talk about here as we go along. says a statement here that's somewhat sobering (laughs) he says a live dog is better than a dead lion and solomon is saying here back in this arabic culture you know you could not be around a dirtier animal than a dog right a dog was the off scouring of the animal kingdom i have a dog that we love tremendously so this hurt me when i read this because i (laughs) i really love macy right I have this new habit now, like every Sunday morning when I get up to spend time with the Lord and review my sermon and pray, I go to my front office and use my dad's old desk. It was an antique desk that he, it was my mom's old antique desk that she got from her great-grandfather. And I'll, I uh, turn on a dim light and have my coffee and, and um, Macy comes in and she just like lays on my cold feet. It's like, what a great dog. <laughs> but apparently, I'm thankful for a living dog. It's better than a dead lion here. And basically, what's he saying here? It's better to be alive than dead. Sure. And since you are, since we are alive, what are we going to do with life? Instead of being consumed with the inevitability of death, What are we going to do with life, like today? And obviously, in addition to living our spiritual priorities of loving God, His Word, each other, and doing the mission of Christ together, we can still pay attention, men, to mending our relationships. Men and women attending to our vows and 
we can still do our jobs well and we can still love our families well and there's a lot of life to live as we live our mission. Verses 5 and 6, we've already read, Solomon may appear here to be a bit grim at first. At first read, but understanding wisdom helps us navigate life's waters until the inevitable event of death occurs. What does the Gospel of John chapter 9 and the second part of verse 4 teach us? Work while it is still day, for the night comes when no man's going to work. godly man said it is the consciousness that men will soon die that no longer and no longer be able to relate to the needs and the joys of this life that forces the striking contrast that we see here in verses five and six for the living know they're going to die it says but the dead do not know anything nor do they even care or have they any longer a reward they can't care Their life's over, and their memory is forgotten. The same author said, knowledge in this life, rewards for this life, and opportunities for service are serious challenges when viewed from the prospect of our soon-to-appear death. And if men are going to live as if there's no tomorrow in eternity and let their passage and desires have free reign then they've played the role of a fool. So, even though death and its timing is a mystery, men should not live their lives as if there's only one go-around in this world, so let's party it up. How sad would it be for man to be active doing wonderful things without doing them for the glory of God and living with eternal purpose? So let's look at these verses together. A believer lives for eternal purpose as they live life on purpose. But we live with the hope of an eternal reward as well. So death for us is just nothing more but a moment, a fleeting moment that transitions us to reward. So we're consumed in this life, looking at the way the text finishes out here in just a moment, with some gifted busyness that saturates our lives as we await this inevitable blip of a moment when we breathe our last that immediately translates us to eternal reward. Absent from the body is present with the Lord. I just want to take a moment to go to 1 Peter chapter 1 and just remind our hearts this morning and encourage our hearts in relationship to our reward. 1 Peter chapter 1, let's look at verse 3. Just through verse 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who in the meantime are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time 
I read something not long ago that was a blessing as you go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 in relationship to this wisdom portion. And so I wrote it down and was saving it for this time. This author said, A hope that can be destroyed by death is a false hope and must be abandoned. A hope that can be destroyed by death is a false hope and must be not sidelined, it must be abandoned. The world lives for everything good or evil that's temporary. The believer lives for everything that's good that's temporary but does not place their hope or their faith even in that good thing that's temporary. Because in death, that hope is killed. But in Christ, we have 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. It's an imperishable hope. An imperishable hope. Solomon teaches the Believers to seize opportunities, to live for that which is good, rather than blindly hoping for something better in the future, because death will end our opportunities on earth. I just want you to think about that, especially parents, as you're rearing children. Where we spend our time is typically where we spend our money and and where we spend our time and our money with our children is typically what we're teaching our children is good and then to just caution yourselves and where you spend your time and your money and for how long and to always make sure of this that you spend your time and your money on that which is good but never at the expense of god's priorities Because we could be rearing, if we're not careful, just practical atheists in our children. We're living for everything that's good that's in the here and now with very little thought of our Jesus and our hope in him and that reward that's reserved for us. We can involve in all those good things where we invest our money and our time at the expense of eternal things. So we can sign our children up for a lot, whether it be the arts or whether it be sport or whether it be any opportunity that is good for your child by the way God made them. And we can invest a lot of money there at the expense of what? Why did God give us this money? Why did God make you this way to do these things among these people? Right? Little Sunday school song, remember parents? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, hide it under a bushel. Nope. Why are you doing what you're doing with your family where you're doing it? And remember, the why is attached to a bride with whom it's supposed to be done. 
I love these good things that God's allowed me to do and to be involved with, and I love the why, but the why and the ultimate mission's been given to a bride, and the bride's name is the church. And how can we love the good thing and love to be light and doing the good thing and say we love to do it apart from that which God loves, which is his bride, the church. So how easy it is for the church, not a building, (laughs) not a religion, how easy it is for the church and its mission to be separated from that which is good that we are gifted to do by God, to enjoy that which is temporary. How are we developing our children to live for that which they've not seen yet? while they enjoy the things that God's given them to do. That takes a lot of time, a lot of prayer, a lot of interaction, but it's worth it, and it's a responsibility that we have as parents here so that our children are prepared to die well because we don't know the moment of even their death. He outlines here for us in the final few verses in 7 to 10 as we wrap up this morning some particular ways that we are to be active and joyfully active while we endure through life in these apparent mysteries. We've already highlighted in chapter 2 and 3 and 5 and 8 multiple times where Solomon wrestles himself to joy in the midst of these difficulties surely death is coming but joy compels us to live and to enjoy the gift of life that the Lord's given us and I've told you often that I'm I'm, I'm given to melancholy I'm given to letting other people discourage me Uh, Rhonda always is telling me um, why do you let others rob your joy Why do you let others control you besides God control you? So those questions are ringing out in my mind as I'm preparing for this so that I don't preach as a hypocrite. Uh, This is stuff that I apply to me. One author said Solomon could have but didn't urge us to go and live the jet set life to start searching for exotic pleasures in faraway places. Instead, he listed some common things we all can enjoy right at home. He says, this is what living really is. And I think we're all going to find it fascinating for probably the most wealthy man on earth at that time. What he lists is the least common denominators of things to enjoy in the midst of, of all the things he could have enjoyed. But remember, this is inspired, preserved wisdom. This isn't, or these aren't casual suggestions from your psychologist who's counseling you to wrestle yourself out of depression by being active. This is what God in his wisdom says through the hand of Solomon that we're to enjoy while we're joyful. Really simple. We can make gods out of any good thing. We've already addressed that. 
And we only know that those good things have been overemphasized or overindulged in when the doing of those good things make other things expendable. But he just lists out here, beginning in verse 7, some simple things. And one of those things, how about happily, happy leisurely meals at home? Happy leisurely meals at home. I don't know, what does it say in verse 7? Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. Sounds pretty simple. I'm sure the founders of DoorDash would love this verse. Our culture shows that eating at home again is slowly coming back actually and God designed us to eat the fruit of our labor together, for sure. And Solomon had the cash to eat out at any fine steakhouse he wanted. And he's saying, look, you go, you eat. He says in Proverbs 15 and verse 17, better a meal of vegetables, listen up kids, where there is love, let a fattened calf with hatred. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 1, better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. One author says, the best item on any family menu is love, for love turns any family dinner into a banquet. Whether you, want to rightly apply, whether you want to apply this to leisurely, joyful family meals or whether you don't, we eat and we typically eat with people. But I really want to challenge this because I've had to challenge my own heart on this too. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to eat as a family at home every night. None of us are going to bat a thousand or even close to that. Right? But I find it interesting here <laughs> As we live through the, the margin of mystery in our lives, what's a simple thing that he says we're to do? Take this text and the two texts from Proverbs and you figure it out. How many believers actually sit down with their families and it's actually peaceful? It's actually joyful. You say, I don't have a Christian family. Well, how often are you looking to have a meal with those who do know Christ? You can experience that joy of that fellowship of breaking bread together. It certainly was happening in the New Testament in Acts 2, right? 41 to 44, just slow down, smell the spiritual roses with your families or other believing people while you break bread. There's a lot of profundity in that simplicity. Just stop and eat with each other and enjoy it. How about celebrations? In verse 8, he says here, let your clothes be white all the time. And this is what they did in that culture when they celebrated. They would dress up in white and let not oil be lacking on your head. Hallmark would love this verse, right? 
They're always trying to create a new holiday so they can create a new card that you'll buy. I was such a sucker the other day. I was out buying a birthday card for my daughter who turned 17 this weekend. And growing up, she liked Disney princesses. So I go to the section. It's a Hallmark card. And it had a Disney princess on the, and they had to put on it, this is our signature series. Right? I got this buck 25 card next to it. I got this card. I don't even want to know what it costs. Right? Because I want to get the best for my little princess. So it's got to be the signature series. It was nice. And we're having a celebration, so I didn't even know what it cost until I got to the cash register. And she blipped it, right? She scanned it. And in denial, I didn't want to look at the screen to what it said. But I was only there buying two things, and I can do math. <laughs> it turns out that puppy was, I'm not even going to tell you because it was worth it because she loved it. It was definitely a signature price, though, for a signature card. Right? Priceless. It's okay to celebrate holidays, birthdays. We have a celebration of service here for a whole month in September for all that God's grace does through you people for eternal purposes within us and without us. It's good to celebrate. But you typically have a really hard time celebrating by yourself. Right? That's weird. Buy yourself a birthday hat. Buy yourself a birthday card. Buy yourself a gift card for your birthday. Go eat. Use your swipe, your own card you bought for yourself. That's like not how God created it to be. Right? So Solomon's saying in light of this blip of death that we're facing, let's go. Let's do this and Let's have dinner together and let's enjoy it. And let's celebrate. That's okay. The Hebrew language here literally says, let your clothes be white, not just all the time, but without ceasing. He's saying here, life and the good gifts that God's give us, it's an endless way of being thankful without ceasing. And yet we have particular times we can rejoice as well. The first part of verse 9. How about embrace the blessings of marriage? For those of you that have a spouse, Solomon is saying here pretty much there's two dangerous words in marriage, yours and mine. He says, if you're really going to embrace marriage, you're going to have to do it as ours. Everything is ours. Think of this in our whole context. We have a short time. We have things to enjoy and goals to reach within that short time. Many have spouses to enjoy this with, and some don't. But for what purpose? For what purpose? God hasn't called you here just so your spouse will make you happy. God hasn't called you here to have any expectations of your spouse, only expectations of yourself. And then you enjoy it together. It's ours in Christ for what purpose? 
because we have a mission that's bigger than even, even our marriage. Embrace the blessings of marriage to be sure. It's right there. Enjoy life with the woman you love all the days of your fleeting life that he has gifted to you. When's the last time you looked at your spouse as a gift? An undeserved gift. One plus one equals one in marriage. And I don't leave my eternal mark on this world without Rhonda. And she doesn't leave hers without me. I don't leave my legacy and she leaves her legacy. We leave our legacy. I don't go home and put pressure on her to be all that she can be for Jesus. How about we be all that we can be for Jesus? Because that's what God's commanding us to do here. We do this together, everything together. Any spiritual success I have is hers, and any success she has is mine, and it's all ours in Christ. I have two teenage boys knock on my door at 7.30. We're having a late dinner Thursday night. We just sat down. We just prayed. We filled our plates and knock, knock, knock. So I went to the door. It's two teenage boys. Two teenage boys that uh, trusted Christ as their Savior Wednesday night, the night before, interested us in our lobby. And they showed up because they want to know a little bit more about the Bible. Right? Dinner's over there. Plates are full. She looks at me, and she could have said, what? And beyond all that, it was a new recipe for chicken. She'd never tried out on us before. <laughs> right? Anticipating what my thoughts were going to be on that recipe. But I had no, no no doubt in my mind, not even a fleeting thought, that she would be unhappy allowing me to enjoy that blessing because it's her blessing. It's a shared blessing. Right? Verses, the second part of verse 9 and verse 10 are all about while we're living, right? Verse 7, go, let's do these things, enjoying your hard work. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. I tell this to my kids in sports all the time. Sports careers can be over in a blink of an eye. So get at it and go 100%. Don't care about how much it costs your parents. Just go! <laughs> my one son in the work world now. Go in your vocation. Climb today. Climb as far as you can today because you might not be here tomorrow. So grab it all today within what God asks us to grab. Go, go, go. One author said as we conclude this morning, what a contrast these four joyful opportunities are compared to society's formula for daily life. Fast food, a full schedule, the addictive pursuit of everything new, live in relationships and shortcuts guaranteed to help you avoid work but to get rich quick. What a contrast. Reading an article by famous Dr. Oz recently who was reviewing how lifestyles affect health, 
And he observed this, that many health and mental professionals are united in calling people back to traditional values in life. He went on to say that many people are growing tired of the emptiness of living on substitutes for these values. They want something more substantial than just the right labels on their clothes and the right names to drop at the right places. So go, enjoy these simple things for eternal purposes and no joy. Saturate your mind, your heart, and your body with proper, simple activity. Do it with joy. Allow it to consume you to the point where death is rarely a thought, if ever. So when it comes, it is what it is. It's a transition to eternal reward. And if we don't do this, we'll live for the temporary, and we'll probably live in a little bit of depression too. So go, 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 go. Go, 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 go with these things, with joy. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you for the simplicity of this wisdom as we navigate and persevere under these margins of mystery in our life that only you know, and we entrust ourselves to you as a faithful creator. We want to continue to do good things, and we find out this morning just four of what those good things are. Help us to be saturated with these good things, but never at the expense of living life on purpose and for eternal purpose. In Christ's name, amen.